Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fucknicks, what the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Today on the show, Billie Jean King. I got an opportunity to talk to her because she has a memoir out called All In, an autobiography. But uh, here's a deal with Billie Jean King. A lot of people know her mostly for the Battle of the Sexes match against Bobby Riggs. But the truth is... She's one of the most important and influential figures in the ongoing fight for equal rights. She won 39, 39 Grand Slam titles, 12 of them in singles. She formed the first all-women's tennis tour with eight other pro players that led to the founding of the Women's Tennis Association. She testified in Congress on behalf of Title IX funding, which made discrimination based on gender illegal in all federally funded school programs, including sports. She's the real deal just amazing i mean i just remember her always being there i I do want to inform you people that we are recording these a little out like brendan's uh you know he's on vacation this week so i put these in the can last week so it's not going to be as topical though tomorrow if this time's out right, I'm supposed to be playing at Largo tonight if I don't have COVID. I'm literally testing. So I will be able to tell you how that goes or didn't go on Thursday. Because that, that'll time out right. I don't need to explain the days, but we are doing these early. That's all. But I can't talk about tennis. I can talk about tennis. Uh, there was a, a point in my brother and my life where, yeah, I wouldn't say I was a sports guy. Uh, a lot of you know the story about me in Little League. Not great. And also, I'm starting to realize, and this is something I'd like to share with my psychiatrist and psychologist, mostly psychologists, people in the therapy racket, I've had a sort of cathartic realization that, that seems logical, and I'm sure I'm not the first to have thought about it. But I started to realize, just given who I am, that one of the primary realities of my life when I was younger for as long back as far back as I remember is that I felt awkward I didn't feel like I fit in at some point I learned how to be funny and I could uh, you know do a little sh- you know song and dance a little show a little smart ass crack I used to be able to sort of get in under the wire with the wit but I never felt that comfortable in my skin or in life or in friendships or around people I just didn't so if you're that kind of person I would say that 95% of your memories are going to be embarrassing and mildly traumatic. So that means that you sort of exist in a kind of like aggravated, mild PTSD just from being uncomfortable your entire life. And even when you get comfortable, the residual effects of that discomfort, of that mild PTSD from being embarrassed, the insecurity that comes from feeling like an idiot or feeling out of place or or just you know you can never get a get any sort of social traction or you you just said the wrong thing all the time it's just like it, i don't think it can be understated i think that's life defining shit and very hard to get out from under why am i telling you all this i don't know at some point i realized that sports weren't for me at some point my brother went the way of the tennis player we were both at uh, a place called new england tennis camp my brother and I were equals at that time. I guess it was, I remember it was a summer where we were sent to two camps. Uh, that was uh, how my parents spent their money. My father was a doctor and uh, my mother was uh, 
a painter and an artist. And I think that once summer came around in the guise of wanting us to have a good time, they just wanted us out of the house. Two camps in one summer, come on. So there was like the Lighthouse Arts Camp that was great. I talked to you about that, that traumatic event of playing Johnny B. Good badly. Some guy who was in that band with me when I was 14 at the Lighthouse Arts and Music Community, he wrote me out of nowhere. The guy, Matt, I believe he played piano, but in my mind it was bass, but maybe he played piano. Either way, he said, uh, wow, man, I don't remember it that way. I don't remember it being that bad. See, now again, that's where this plays in, that if you feel uncomfortable, you feel awkward, everything's going to feel shitty. But you know what? It was bad. He was high. He was one of the high guys. There was no way he could have registered what was happening. So uh, I, I, I disagree with his memory of the situation. It was terrible, and it, it was uh, destroyed my confidence in music for the rest of my life. So apparently he's working in the music business, not as a musician. But see, that's how it goes. Anyways, tennis camp. So there was a time where it was tennis all the time, and we went to this tennis camp. We played all the time, me and my brother. But like that was two, a couple of things happened at tennis camp. Uh, one. I played okay, was never great, never gave a shit. One thing that happened was that uh, my roommate was a guy, real jappy, kind of a Long Island guy named Stu, who, you know, I eventually grew to kind of, he kind of annoyed me and I just resented him. And I I was hanging out with another guy named Peter Blumenthal, whose dad was an executive at NBC, uh, which plays into my life later, but uh, also smoked cigarettes. He was kind of tiny guy i wonder what happened to that guy i I don't know what what happened to that guy but uh you know we were at tennis camp and i would hang out with the guys who smoked so that's where i was at but Stu annoyed me so here uh, let's just set this straight Stu, listen to me i'm sorry i don't remember your last name but uh but i I gotta tell you uh i did steal the red octopus cassette i did i know i said i didn't i know you know i did i i know it was your cassette Uh, i liked it but i didn't like it that much i just didn't like you and uh, I don't know why. It was, you know, I'm not a stealing kind of guy, uh, but I, I did. I took it. I took the Jefferson Starship Red Octopus record. I looked you right in the face. I said I didn't, but I did. And I need to get that off my heart. I'm sorry. It was nothing personal. I'm not a thief. I just, uh, I just, you annoyed me. And I, and I took the cassette. Didn't even like it that much. Okay, back to tennis. So Craig, my brother's jamming on the tennis, doing great. Uh, I'm, I can hit a ball, like I said, pretty good, but me and Blumenthal are hanging out. Another thing I realized is that these, looking back on it, is these counselors at these camps were like 19 years old. When you're, when you're younger, you're like, who are these old guys, and how come they're all you know, hooking up and fucking? That was happening. I had this uh, crush on a, 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 a counselor there. I think her name was Betty. And this guy, uh, Rogoff, I think his name was Bruce, he had the room down the hall. It was all at this, uh, it was in Pauling, New York, on the campus of a college. He had the room and he had this whole wall, it seemed, of, you know, assembled plastic cassette shelves um, with TDK cassettes of his entire record collection. It was just a setup for fucking outside of the bunk bed. So he was having sex with this woman who I was, you had a crush on, but I was like 14 and she was probably 20, 22. And I think she was hanging out with this guy, Bruce, down the hall. It, it was all very upsetting. But me and Blumenthal were smoking cigarettes. So it turns out Blumenthal, his old man, this comes out of tennis. That's why I'm talking about it, is an executive at NBC. And as many of you remember, I talk about his father set up set up for me a tour of studio, what is it, 8H or whatever it is, the Saturday Night Live one, because I wanted to meet Belushi. So I drive into the city with my grandma Goldie and, and this guy's dad set up this uh, meeting. So that was the time we went up there and we were waiting to meet Belushi and a very seemingly high Al Franken comes out. Hey, how you doing? As I, we were like, I just want to meet John Belushi. Just a little, I was 14 with my grandma. And he's like, John's busy. John, <laughs> John's busy. Uh, sorry. <laughs> and wandered off. Franklin in his giant Jufro. But that was the that was my first experience at, at the SNL building, uh, which was disappointing. And then the next experience I had was uh, auditioning and being rejected for the show. And that all comes from tennis. That's my point. You know, tennis. You know, it, sometimes it can take you places you didn't quite anticipate. You know what I'm saying? That's all I'm saying. My brother went on to become a semi-pro tennis player. He went to Nick Boletari's Tennis Institute. Uh, he played tennis all his life, all through college. Uh, he set up a business after college, a tennis teaching business. And then at some point, it just stopped. 
poor kid didn't have the natural gift, which you need to go all the way. Worked his ass off, and now, like, I think for years, he just didn't even fucking think about it. Didn't even look at a racket. Didn't just, didn't even pick it up. And he's a guy, because, you know, he's got all that muscle memory, he could just pick up a racket and in 10 minutes beat most of us. He's just that good, my brother Craig. He never he doesn't even, he doesn't even play recreationally. But now he's like I think he's a pickleball addict. I don't even know what that is, but I think he has a pickleball problem. Billie Jean King has a new book out. It's called All In: An Autobiography. It's available now wherever you get books. And this is me talking to the legend over Zoom. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No no pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Are you are you signing autographs? I would love to, but nobody's here to sign them for. Oh, you're just making <laughs> some notes? No, but I did. No, I am signing. No, I'm learning about uh, about you, Mark. Oh, you want to interview me? Yeah, I mean, I like. I mean, I've seen. Oh, we dropped. We dropped my. Mic Those are the uh, lavalier mics. Are they're they're way behind in their technology somehow? Yes, they are. <laughs> you are very observant, but I, you work I, you work in this biz all the time. I do. How do you feel about being in show business this few weeks? Well, I think as a player, we are a performer. I think yeah. I've been through this before. Um, it's all right. I like it. I like communication. I like. I don't know. I just like. Uh, I like people. That's what yeah. I like. Yeah, I do. I really like people. Well, it's interesting to me because I was thinking back on you and in my experience of you and the world, you have been ubiquitous through my entire life. <laughs> Seriously. I, I mean, like I, I grew up in the 70s and it was just you were always around. Yes, I was around a lot in the 70s, I guess. But um, but it yeah, was like, I, I mean, I've seen you on a lot of shows. When did you start doing the, like those night shows? I mean, oh, the stand up. Yeah, I, I guess I started that. I, I mean, I really started doing that in the late 80s. You know, I've been around, I've been working it, and I've been, uh, you know... Uh, That's a not- hard job. I don't know how you guys do it. How do you get the guts to do that every night, especially if they don't laugh or don't do what you well, want? Well, you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, of self-torture, you know, not unlike uh, competitive <laughs> sports. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the risk of losing is always there, and you just fight against it, except the, you know, the, the game is not as specific. You know, there's a lot yeah, of... Yeah, it's, uh, it's more subjective, yes, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was like, when I was like going through your book and that's it, it you know that you made a big book it's got a lot of weight to it quite a life it's it's really heavy i noticed that too we got it down to that it was over 800 pages oh my god i'm you know i'm old man i'm gonna be 78 this year i'm living large i've had a great life so far and i hope i continue but there's no guarantees as you know in life so yeah i well i mean 800 did you like how long did it take you to write it uh spent over four and a half years on it and do you, like, when you were doing it, were there periods where, like, you were writing and you were kind of amazed? No, you know what? I don't write that much. I, I have to talk it. So you And talk. I had people help. But no, right. I spent the time talking it, looking at it, correcting it, editing, you know, like, all, just, I, I'm, I'm not a bad editor. I'm not a great writer. I'm not. Yeah, I'm the but same I can, way. I can edit like crazy. And, and I just spent time talking, doing interviews. You know, like I'd have them sit. We'd sit at the dining room table. That dining room table's got a lot of stories there, and uh, just tape, tape, tape. Write, write, write. I I talk it better, and and people keep asking me questions or whatever, and then I just keep figuring it out. Yeah, talking it is much better. It's a long process, of wow, but it's worth it. You know, you want to get it right, and and I had to leave so many people out, which I hate, uh, my friends and things. But you know what? 
you can't make the book 400 pages even if you don't do that. So when you were telling the stories, were there were there moments like, you know, when you're going through your mind that you were kind of uh, amazed or or you found uh, like what were the like in, in recollecting this life of yours? What was it like the most pivotal things that, you know, you for, like when you were younger, do you remember turning points where you're like, oh, oh, that's oh no, no, no. I definitely had two or three turning points. Absolutely. And then they've lived on with me forever because of those turning points. And I think if you talk to most people, ask them questions, uh, if, you, if they talk about their youth, yeah, they'll have their turning points. Did you? Yeah, I think so. None of them were great. You know, like. But what, what feel, was like, what was like a really important turning point? What do you remember your first turning point? Like in, professionally, you know, I, I definitely remember the first time I failed on stage and, the, and just the horrible trauma of. Was, you was know, that the first time you'd ever been on stage or was it? Later, there was later. The first again, uh, and another time I was on stage, which I was just talking about recently, is I, I did terribly. And like I, I'm starting to look back at my life, and I realize that most of my, I find that if you're an awkward person or you feel uncomfortable when you're younger, almost all of your experiences are going to be embarrassing or traumatic. That that's been my experience. That oh, I see. Be- I, I understand that. That's who yeah. you are. That's your personality. Yeah. So like all when I look back, I'm just sort of like, oh god, that was terrible. Oh my god, how did I get through that? I'm like that At a least... lot. It's never good enough. Right, right. Do yeah, you, I'm like do, that. I you get are? It. Yeah, I am. But that's also what drives me, and I love that drive. So it's like, yeah, like the but losses you, stay with you, and you don't want to feel that feeling again, and you're just like, you know, give me the right. ball. You right. Know, it's like, but yeah. at least you had a, a context and the context was tennis. For me, it was just sort of like, how do I charm these people better? <laughs> oh, no. I, but but I, 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 in a different way than what yeah. you're talking, because you're entertainment. When you go in to get uh, sponsorship in yeah. business yep. or if you're trying to change things, then it's, oh, it's exhausting. And you do have yeah. to learn how to talk with people. How do you get them to move? How do you get them to agree? Uh, and also, it, maybe they come up with much better ideas than you have, so you've got to actively listen all the time, because maybe they're going to come up with a better idea uh, as well. So you just got to keep listening as you go through the process. But when you were like a kid, though, like, do you remember, do you know where it came from? Do you remember where your sort of uh, uh, being hard on yourself came from? I think my dad may be watching him. He was really intense when he was in sports. In fact, he yeah. was so intense, he got carried off a couple of times. A few times, and my mother and my brother and I would be sitting watching, like, you know, this is when he's older, obviously, um, in Firefighters League, they had a a basketball league, because my dad was very good in basketball. Oh, yeah, he'd want to go punch the the referee or something, and I'm like, oh, my God. And my mother and we go, oh, God, this is horrible, and they'd pull him (laughs) off and take him off, and and then I start smiling, and my mother goes, what are you smiling at? I said, Mom. (laughs) You know, I think he's horrible. I, he's terrible, but I love his intensity. I love it because that's what makes greatness. I said, Mom, I just love that part of Daddy. And she says, Oh, I love that part too, but he just, you know, it's like. <laughs> that's so funny. So I would take the good part of somebody, I think, and aspect of them, and then I'd keep it. Right. Like I'd say, Thanks, Dad. You gave kind of like a gift to me. Right. And then my mother would give me another gift, and that is not always going off the deep end or something. And she would be, you know, very uh, kind and... Grounded? Uh, ground, very grounded. Boy, did she keep my brother and me grounded. Grounded. Yeah. Talk yeah. about sometimes taking the enthusiasm out. But you know what? It was good because we were, we were crazed and obsessed with what we wanted to achieve. So uh, they really accepted that part of us and tried to keep it calm. And my mother particularly would keep it calm and... Like you said, grounded and yeah, it's interesting though when when you have intense like dad. My dad was very intense, and as I get older, you really do have to sort of sort out. You know, like all right, there was some bad stuff there. <laughs> yes. What, about, what what do I have that that is is great about that guy? What do you but think? You do what do you to, think is the greatest thing from your dad? What do you think? Well, I think that at his best, he's a you know he's a, a he's a passionate guy. He's charismatic. He's engaged. He's He's, um, and, you know, and he, he likes to laugh, but, you know, he was a, a little, you know, manic and a little crazy and a little unpredictable and a bit abusive. Yeah, I get it. But yeah, sounds like you took the best parts. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got the other ones. I've just got to <laughs> <Gotta, laughs> put them. I know. Well, I got some of the others. I have anger. I, I had to work on my anger, but I, I worked on it really hard and I don't have it anymore. I got rid of it. I don't 
ever go, I don't even feel the same or anything. It's great. Really? No, but I went to therapy and I still do therapy. Are you kidding? I worked hard in therapy. I, you know what? You can't, you got to work it. If you go to therapy, it's the same as doing anything else. You got to work it. If you want to no, just absolutely. go for an hour or 50 minutes and then not think about it or feel about it or, or do anything, then you're not going to get that much better. If you accept the responsibility of it and really want to get in there, uh, I think it can make a big difference. Oh, yeah, of course. And, and as you get older, you know exactly why you're there. Yeah, I need to be there. Yeah, we're there <laughs> yeah. because you, I need to be here and I need to do this. I need to do this for myself and, quite frankly, for others. <laughs> yeah, you know where you're stuck. Like, what what were your primary issues when he started? What, therapy? Yeah. Well, I, saw my, I think it was probably my sexuality. And, yeah, my, and yeah. my parents, my dad's anger issues, uh, definitely. Yeah. But I loved his intensity. I loved both of their passion. I mean, they just, when they believe in something, it's, it's 100%, which I loved. Somehow, somehow he, uh, your, your parents created two professional athletes. I mean, it, so there must have been some sort of like uh, uh, kind of driving element. I mean, did they, were they, over, was he overly pressuring? Oh, absolutely not. They were the opposite. That's the reason oh, we were good. crazed. Because yeah. we could be. And they are always trying to temper it. Like, no, no, no. Randy wanted to be a major league baseball player by the time he was 10. At 11, I told my mom and dad I wanted to be the best tennis player in the world. Of course, I didn't know anything about tennis because I grew up in team sports. And um, yeah. basketball was my, our first love. And Randy ends up being a you know professional baseball player for 12 years. Nine, Ten of those with the uh, San Francisco Giants and then with the Astros and Blue Jays. And, um, and I got to be number one in the world and more than once, so a lot more than once. And I got really... Very fortunate, but we were born with their coordination, but they really only cared about health and education as long as we're healthy and happy. And so they gave us space. They, didn't, they never asked us if we won. You know how parents always go, did you win? Yeah. Did you win? And they hover. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, they're, they're like snowplow parents, so they never want them to suffer. And then, you know, their helicopter, they're always hovering over them and, and they, you know, just being so intense with their children and they have to win. Oh, my parents didn't care at all about that. We're the ones that were crazed. I mean, we drove them nuts. Oh, I yeah, can't yeah. believe I lost. And, you know, my dad said, calm down. You're okay. This is when he was. This is when my dad was a great life coach. Calm down. Do you think you're playing too much? Not enough. Do you still love it? I said, yeah. are you kidding? I love it. I can't stand it. I'm losing. And he said, well. Was that the, your whole life? He was, that was the dynamic when he was alive? He was, he was amazing, but he was also a firefighter. So he was away every other night. My mother, so it was the three of us, and then the four of us, then the three of us, then the four of us. And then we'd also go down to the fire station sometimes and see him and the other guys and the other firefighters. And when I was a baby, he used to take me down the pole when I was like three, four years old. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Oh, that's exciting. Oh, so it was, that was so awesome. So you had firefighters around all the time, like parties, backyard? My uncle was a firefighter, so. Oh, my God. Yeah, I did have it around. And my dad, he was also a police officer for a while. I didn't like it. He was losing faith in humanity, he said. It's too tough on him. He loved it's, being a firefighter. Hard. He, he drove the truck. Every time I see a fire truck go by, I, I salute it and go, hi, Daddy. So, uh, yeah, oh, that's yeah. sweet. So when, when, so you, I mean, my brother played, was committed to tennis for years, and then he just realized at some point that he didn't have the natural talent to what, be Did he want to be a pro? He did. He was, you know, he was sort of ranked in doubles one time. He went to Nick Bolateri's oh, tennis wow. institute. No, no, that's 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 real. Nick is wonderful. Yeah, it was hardcore. What's your, what's and, your, bro- uh, what's your brother's name? Craig Marin, and Craig. he. That was his whole life when he was a kid. So I was always on the outside of this tennis life. He was at it all the time, and oh. at some point, he just realized he didn't have the natural ability that would take him over the top. So he just gave it up. It was brutal. So he, re- he really wanted it then. He did. Does, yeah. he play, and does, now he play, almost, does he play at all recreationally? Not. He just like stopped. Like he oh, wow. after college, he he taught for a while, and then he was just sort of like it was like never again. You know. Well, maybe now just, he plays that pickleball thing. Maybe oh, pickleball's great. Maybe he's disappointed. Yeah, you got to be. It's got to be kind of heartbreaking. He'd be a good podcast for you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Sorry. <laughs> so, when did you start feeling? That, you know, that I guess it probably happened naturally that it was your responsibility to to sort of start taking on the fights that you took on, uh, you, you know, like uh, that, when was I know at, we, that was at 12 years old. Um, oh, really? When I, had, when I had my epiphany at the Los Angeles Tennis Club, I grew up I grew up in Long Beach, California. And when I started playing, I've been playing tennis for a year. Uh, I already knew I wanted to be number one. That that happened 
really early. That was the second time sure. I was on a tennis court. So fast forward to 12 years old, I'm at the Los Angeles Tennis Club, and I'm daydreaming, and I started thinking about my sport because I came from team sports. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, everybody's wearing white socks, white shoes, white clothes, plays with white balls, and everybody who plays is white. And I hadn't seen a person of color yet play tennis. Yeah. So I'm like, where's everyone else? So I started thinking about it. I also was in, wanted to travel and see the world and learn and was curious. It drove my parents crazy because they're always asking questions and curious. And so I started to realize that I could travel with it. And I just remembered I was going to promise myself I'd fight for equality the rest of my life after seeing that. I just knew that was what I was meant to do, and um, that tennis, God willing, if I could become number one, I knew as a girl that I had a disadvantage because of my gender, that people probably wouldn't listen to me, but maybe if I could become number one, they might, and I was going to fight for this the rest of my life, and I, and, um, I made that promise to myself. I, haven't, I have not veered from that course ever, and I just got very, really, I got really lucky that tennis provided the platform and the travel and, and also a way to, you know, fight for equality and fight for everyone. Every single person needs to be represented. You know, they need, Absolutely. you know, so I just think it's important. And I just knew, I just know that sports is, we're very fortunate. And just like you, you're fortunate that people see sure. to try to help make this world a better place. And it's just, I love and early, it. Early on, how did you manage your anger? I mean, were you were there not, situations? Not, not too well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had a temper on the court. My dad said, of course, this is ironic. This is just perfect. Right. I threw my racket. My dad says, that's it. You cannot throw your racket. You're a bad sport. You can't do that. And of course, I'm looking at him like, really? <laughs> yeah, so coming he, from you? We have a power, we have a power saw in the, in the garage. And he turns it on and takes my one and only racket, puts it with about an in, within about an inch of the blade. And I'm going, Daddy, Daddy, stop, stop. I promise I won't throw it anymore because I, I, I want to play tennis, right? right he, and yeah. I can see my tennis going out the window right now with one little, you know, with, right through the saw there. So he says, okay. And then after I had my racket in my hand, I said, Daddy, I mean, really, are you really one to talk? And he right. started laughing so hard because he knew. He bu totally busted, okay? He was yeah. totally busted. Totally. Boy, I also said, the, I got him. Gotcha, Dad. The drama of guillotining the racket. I mean, that's like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he just started. He, he turned the saw on. And oh it my was, god! He was, turned it on. He was. He made it so dramatic. I could just. Yeah, just, that's great. So my dad and my. Yeah, he was pretty intense. But like, what about the anger? Did you find yourself angry at male players? Um, because of no, I wanted. Their well, yes, yes, and no. But I, um, I wanted the men and women to be together. Everything with right. me is to unite. Okay. Yeah. It's to unite, not divide. So I'm big on. I wanted the women's and men, uh, I mean, the men and women to be together in an association, for instance, which would be the same as a union, but we're independent contractors, so we can't be called a union, but to have one right. voice as a, as a sport. And the guys just kept rejecting us. So, yeah, I was upset with them, and they were really great guys. I mean, I used to go to dinner with them, dancing, everything. I really liked them. We were like friends. But when it came to money, they thought it all belonged to them. And Larry, my former husband, told me, he said, Billy... If we ever get professional tennis, which we did in 1968, they will think every dime belongs to them. They will want you to go away. And I said, oh, no, Larry, these guys are my friends. They're really great guys. No, no, that won't happen. He says, Billy, and when it's money, they think the money only belongs to them, that you guys don't earn any money, you don't, you don't draw any people, you don't do anything. And he said, um, get ready. And, and Larry was completely right, and I was completely wrong. So uh, that was a wake-up call. But was I disappointed? Was I upset? Yes. Um, it happened to be the men I was upset because they're the ones that wanted this out. Uh, not because of their gender, though, because of their actions. And I still think we should be together. And I will always think that until the day I die. So there we go. Well, I mean, when you, when you testified in Congress uh, on behalf of... Title IX? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, at that point you had... 
you know, some celebrity, you were a respected uh, uh, athlete. And, and I imagine th- that must have been very rewarding to take it to the to the government and to, yes. you know, to uh, to shift uh, the, the perception legally. Well, I, I promoted Title IX, but I, I, went, I didn't pass it. The, the government, I mean, the Senate. No, of course. House, right, but, right, right. But, the, you know, I had three sheroes uh, and, and one hero. Ben, Senator Birch Bayh was the one that got it through the Senate, the uh, Title IX. And he actually wrote out the, I think, the 37 words. He was just amazed what Title IX equaled later. And also it helped get rid of quotas in the classroom. You know, before 1972, before Title IX was passed, there were classroom quotas, only 5%, 6%, whatever, could be women. And that's yeah. why we didn't have any women lawyers or doctors until after Title IX. And then also we didn't have women... Uh, women's athletic scholarships until after Title IX was passed. So uh, Title IX is one of the most important um, legal things that have been passed in the legislation in, I think, in the 20th century. It's probably top three. Yeah, and it's it's amazing that, like, you know, before that, you know, you know uh, d- discrimination based on gender was just the way it was. And that's 1972. Right. In 1973, when I played Bobby Riggs, we still couldn't get our a credit card on our own. I mean, that, that sounds ridiculous now. You know, I I, it makes me it. laugh, though, because what is it people always talk about women? They shop until they drop. Right. Why couldn't you get and a credit card? And then why wouldn't you give her a credit card? She's, you're going to make so much more money, right? I mean, it's ridiculous when they do that. But, but it's like, they, but that's, that is exactly the, it, it's sort of that, you know, the idea that the marriage contract is ownership in some way. And, that, and that's really what all those rules are based on, that they cannot function or do anything without the approval or the consent of a man. Correct. Yeah, that's uh, like I, I feel bad. <laughs> I feel like I can't I can't believe that's so recent. I know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, think about it, really. And I remember when I, in 1973, I was 10 years old, and I remember the the match with Bobby Riggs and that you know the circus that it was presented as. Uh, but but it did have uh, an impact in in a positive way for you and and for for, for people in general, don't yeah, you think? Yes, yeah, so it was about social change, and it also yeah. helped. Uh, it helped. Um, make Title IX more important. Uh, and also, it was only the third year of our women's professional tour, tennis tour. It was about social change. And it was 90 million people. That's a lot of people. And I knew that was my one moment to fight for equality and have all of these people hopefully would listen, which is always riding, you know, always walking on a tightrope, though, because you so never you, know. So you, well, you that, can, Because so you, you don't want to... Okay, everything's audience. Well, you know right. that. God, who yeah. am I talking to? Hello. Anyway, sure. um, everything's your audience. In my whole life, one thing I do understand as a performer, as a professional athlete, that everything, if you give a speech, it doesn't matter, but everything is your audience. Every, they are the most important, each and every person. So I knew this was my one moment, but I also knew don't screw it up because that would be very easy. And the one way to do that is to lose. So, oh, who's that girl? Oh, she's that girl that lost that old guy and whatever, how they remember. But um, And also, I could continue to, if I, if I won, I could continue the fight a lot easier. Um, can you imagine? I, I said to myself, if you lose, oh, my God, if I lose, I'm going to wake up every single day the rest of my life in the eyes of others as I lost to this old guy. <laughs> and I thought, I cannot. I cannot think about that. Because every <laughs> single day since that match, it's been mentioned to me or in some way there. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Every single day. We're talking about it now, right? So I got yeah. today's taken care of again. Every single day this match comes up. You're eternally connected Correct. to Bobby Riggs. But you won. I wanted to win. And if you win, that's what people remember. And I can't believe all the discussions and fights going on and the bets. Oh, my. The bets. You cannot yeah. believe the betting for that match. I mean, Vegas, everything <laughs> was going crazy. And families were betting. And if she wins, you have to wash the dishes forever and make me coffee in the morning. And then if he, if he wins, I'll do this. Oh, my gosh. It was like. And then they had all these parties in the burbs. All the fraternities and sororities had parties that night. I mean, it was crazy because I've learned all about this after the fact. And everybody remembers where they were, you know, and more yeah. of Time Inc. She's left Time Inc. now, but she, she met her future husband that night. They decided to go watch the match by themselves. Wow. And yeah. she was engaged, so she had to dis- 
<laughs> I mean, I've, I've heard so many great stories. Smith College went out in the streets with toilet paper throwing. Yay! I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> So, Wasn't um, it amazing when we all had just three channels to watch yeah, and everybody was on the same? But you make a lot more money now because you had pay per. But like, when did you realize that you know what you know after you did the uh, the women's tennis tour and then the women's tennis association? What was the relationship? How did the relationship develop between you and what was known or evolving as the women's movement? Right. So what. I when used to. Talk, I would sit with Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzig. Um, yeah. I didn't really meet with Betty Friedan, but no, I I knew about all that. I went to Gloria. She actually helped Larry and me. She and Pat Carbine, who was the editor of Ms. Magazine, uh, they helped us. We started a women's sports magazine back. Larry and I did in in I think early '75 or late '74, and uh, they were so helpful with that. So I was around them from a business point of view, but I also was trying to get Gloria to use more, use us more in the women's movement because a lot of times they didn't connect that sports was so much what they were fighting for, that we represented everything the women's movement's about, and that is winning, sweating. Yeah. It's okay to sweat. Oh, yeah. God forbid we're a woman, we can't sweat. No, right. we're about, we're real. We, and we used all of ourselves. We, we, we trusted our body. Girls are taught not to trust their bodies. We trusted our bodies. We showed what it feels like, what it looks like to trust your bodies. And I said, Gloria, we are the essence. And we're on television every day just about. Use yeah. us more. Integrate <laughs> us more. Yeah. And that was, that was hard on them. It's, yeah, because they didn't come from that background well, and, what was their resistance well, the men understood no it's just lack of not living that and connecting with it like men connected with sports right. and right. so uh, the, the men understood what we we're trying to do when i talked to them and a lot of women understood it when we talked about it but i, I couldn't quite get that what i wanted and i've talked to gloria since and i mean she she finally said to me the other like two years ago right before covid i'll never forget we yeah. did there was a few of us on stage, but Gloria was yeah. there. And she came up to me, and this is the first time she went, Billy, I got to talk to you. How was it playing that guy, Bobby Rick? How was that? I, I, I can't imagine what that pressure was like. I can't, you know, and all of a sudden I'm like, wow. Now she's in her 80s and she's like totally enmeshed in this. But she's yeah. also had a, an extra 40, 50, 60 years to see our advancements, to to learn about us, you know, athletes, I'm talking, women athletes. Yeah. And I think she feels very connected now. And I know she was trying to feel connected. She said, I didn't do sports, um, but I, I knew she was a tap dancer, a hoofer. And that was good. I said, well, dance is sports. I mean, sports is dance. So try to connect on that. But I could tell they, they're so in their heads. They're kind of from the neck up, a lot of right. the intellectuals. It's intellectual, yeah, it's intellectual from the neck up, trip. and yeah. we have to use all of ourselves. And I was trying to explain that. And I, it's not that we don't use our brains, too, but we just have to kind of connect all of ourselves. And, but and that, isn't that an issue? Wasn't that part of the uh, the, the problem of, of progress, in a sense, that you, you know a lot of the activism and uh, the the movement was... Uh, you know, it was heady and it was, you know, in the streets and whatnot, but they, the, they were not interested in sports in general, even as consumers. So wasn't that part of the struggle was how yes. do you get women to uh, you know, engage in sports as consumers and fans and supportive uh, uh, masses? Yes, but, but also women are huge fans. Women, if, if the women all of a sudden said, of course, this is now, you know, after COVID, so... Or yeah. during COVID, Let's, if we're say pre-COVID, okay, that if the women said we're not going to buy tickets anymore to the NFL, to the NBA, and to uh, ice hockey, and to which is all men, yeah, I think it's at least forty percent of the sales. Really, I don't think women have any idea the power they have ever. That's why I want them to follow the money, and I want people to understand when a woman leads. She leads for everyone. And what people do when women lead, we only lead for women. And it gets me crazy because that keeps our marketplace half as big. Here's the usual thing. Billy, Billy, thanks what you did for women's tennis. I fought for pro tennis. And then the pro tennis hurt the women, actually, because the men wanted to get rid of us. No, I've always fought for tennis. 
but people always put me in, oh, you're always fighting for gender equity. I am fighting for gender equity, but I'm fighting for anyone who doesn't get paid equally uh, for equal work. So the women happen to be really low on the totem pole there, so of course I have to fight for them. We're under-resourced. But in general, when you fight for anybody, it means you're fighting for everyone. And I don't under... They don't ever say to a guy, thanks for what you did for men's tennis. Yeah. Ever. Ever. And do you know how many times when they talk about, oh, you you throw like a grandmother. Do they ever use the word grandfather? Never. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been interviewed even for this book. Oh, you know, I was out in the... You know, I was talking, I was out in the yard and, you know, I'm I'm throwing like my grandmother. They didn't say my grandfather. It's a guy. But yet they yeah. use woman as a derogatory thing instead of their grandfather. I mean, you can hear it day in and day out as you go through the day. Tomboy. What, how, what is and that? Then, and then also on the other side of that, Billy, it seems that, you know, when, when women do succeed and do amazing things athletically, then they start comparing them to men Which where they should just be right. You just you're just being yourself and you're a human being Correct. doing a competitive job. Right. And, and the men can beat us. We've always said the men can beat us. We can be. But we're just as entertaining. And sometimes <laughs> we're more entertaining. Sometimes they're more entertaining. But we're all entertainers. But women, there's no way the top women can beat the top men. We've never, ever once claimed we have. The men keep bringing it up saying, oh, you think you're better than we are. No, we don't. We've never. Where do you find where we ever said that? That we never right. said it. We've never said we're better. I, we've always said the top guys will always be the top women. Next? Yeah, I mean, that's just, just, yeah we just want our place in the world. Oh, my. Well, it depends right? what it is. Yeah, of course. I start talking to people like in the arts about, you know, that, that there's so many uh, kind of white men who are threatened by diversity because they think they're being pushed out. But the truth of the matter is the, the field is just more competitive and more voices are included. <laughs> but we were never in. That's what they don't, but they wanted to keep state that way. It's not, it's not right. right. It's not just about girls either. We're talking about people of color. We're talking about sure, people exactly. with, living with disabilities. We're talking about everything. And uh, no, but it's, it's so irritating. I get so, <laughs> you can tell I get a little irritated. Of course, because it's ongoing. It's you know, it's it never it's a step is. To, I can go through yeah. a day, a day, every day. I can point out stuff all day long. So. Sure, but let me ask you something though. I was wondering, like, like, isn't it amazing to you when you look back the idea that a cigarette company was the primary benefactor oh. that changed everything and changed your life? Oh yeah, because I, when Gladys Hellman, who was our leader, there's uh, nine of us that signed a one dollar contract with Gladys Hellman in 1970. That was the this was uh, the the woman's the original store? nine. The original yeah. nine is the essence of so many things and why things are so relevant today. When like when a, a woman athlete, particularly a woman tennis player, gets a check, it's yeah. because of that moment in time when we're willing to give up our entire careers for the future generations. And there are three elements. That any girl born in this world, if she's good enough, would have a place to compete. Number two, that she'd be appreciated for her accomplishments, not only her looks. And number three, to be able to make a living playing tennis. You know, her sport. You know, our sport. This was the manifesto of the original nine? This is it. This is the, yeah. we've set and talked about this a long time. I said to them, if you expect to make a lot of money, if you expect a lot of applause, if you expect a lot of appreciation for this, don't do it. Do it yeah. because we know it's the right thing to do. And so we did it and yeah. we got suspended and then we didn't get, I mean, it was, you don't want to know. Every minute things were changing. But that was the moment where it's the birth of women's professional tennis the way you know it today. So when you see Osaka make $55 million, that's the reason she's able to make that money and why we're able to grow the sport and why we're number one in, in women's sports as far as financially. Um, yeah. It's because of that moment in time in 1970, and that's why I try to tell kids and people that it's really important to know your history because not only do you know about yourself more, you know how to shape the future because everyone is an influencer. Every single right. person is an influencer. You especially never, now. You, you don't know, especially now with social media. Correct. Yeah. And, and you can mobilize faster. You can, oh my gosh, things are just speedy. How did the, how did the relationship with uh, Virginia Swims? What was that? Oh, was that, uh, well, Gladys Hellman that... comes up to me and says, oh, I got us a sponsor, Virginia yeah. Slims. And I go, 
Gladys, we're athletes. We can't do that. She says, well, you signed a dollar contract with me, which is my fault because I told her to sign us for a dollar because she said I can't afford a lot of money. I said, just sign us for a dollar. It's, it's just as binding as a trillion dollars. And she goes, and she was oh, an agent? And she was a publisher of World Tennis Magazine. Oh, okay. and, and Larry and all of us wanted to get to her because owning a magazine meant uh, advertising, right? And advertising yeah. meant she probably knew a lot of CEOs. Yeah. And that is correct. So she's the one that had a relationship with, uh, you know, a friendship with Joseph Coleman, who used to be, he was the CEO chairman of Philip Morris, and he believed in women and believed in women's tennis. And this Virginia Slims all of a sudden couldn't be on television commercials, right? In fact, the last one was 1970, I think December 31st on the Johnny Carson show. Uh huh. And so... 71, guess what? They've got all this money they've been spending on, on television commercials, and now they can spend it on us. I had a hard time with that, but Gladys said, I'm your boss. Didn't you sign the $1 contract? I said, I sure right. did. She says, well, are you going to let me do this or not? And I said, you're the boss. I'll do whatever you want. So that's how that worked. And uh, even after they weren't our sponsor, all those different people uh, would help us uh, in trying to shape the future of our sport. So I'm always indebted to them. We called him Uncle Joe because he, without him and about without the company. And I must say, working with them, they had the most integrity of any any company I've ever worked with. Philip so, Morris. Yeah, they were amazing. So I'm like, you never know, right? You never know what's it's going just so, to evolve. It, it, the the irony of it that you know totally. with his support and you know with the even the corporate relationship with Philip Morris that the the one thing that was going to put women on the map in terms of you know beginning to earn what they d- deserve was literally a company that killed them. <laughs> hey, no, I, I hear you. It. No, yeah. I hear you. I it was very. It was not easy for me. Not, yeah. But I also couldn't think just about myself. Right. Well, I know. I mean, it was like that's that, but that's understanding the nature of politics. Yep. But that's also leadership. You have to sure. not. Got to make decisions. Yeah, it was rough. I must say it was rough because uh, I don't smoke. So I never smoked. My parent, my dad, <laughs> my dad, life coach <laughs> yeah. said, yeah. you know, if you're going to be an athlete, you don't drink or smoke. And did he smoke or drink? No, they didn't really drink. They had maybe one cocktail if they went out dancing, which was once a year. And then, because Randy and I would say, go out and dance, because we love to watch them dance. They're really good. Yeah. And then um, my dad would smoke a cigar, but not really smoke it when he was out doing, watering the lawn, but he would never, uh-huh. but kind of a fake smoke thing. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he did chew uh, tobacco. Oh, God, did he? For a while. It was so gross. I said, Daddy, you just, I don't want to be around. <laughs> gross, gross. Can't stand it. Spitting so anyway, but that's baseball. You know, he was a baseball scout for a while, my dad was, for the Brewers. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, he's, to... we're, we're, we all love basketball first. Would you hear basketball any place in here? Yeah. There, was no, yeah. there was nothing for girls in basketball when I was young. Nothing. And you had, nothing a, you had to chew anything. tobacco. If you're involved with baseball, you I had know, to chew tobacco. I know, you had to, right? Oh, it's yeah. gross. And it's, you get cancer of the tongue, the esophagus. It's terrible. You know, don't do It's get... all bad. So now, like, I... I well, obviously, you, you know your 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 sort of public birth into being out was uh, was difficult and uh, and and jarring, I imagine. And yes. how, I mean, how long did it really take you to to sort of you know find peace with that? What was it that transitioned into something that you were able to be proud of? I think therapy helped me the most, and I went to yeah. an eating disorder place. Yeah, an eating disorder too, huh? Oh yeah, but that that was part of it. I mean, they'll go hand in hand a lot because it's that's like a control a control issue, right? Eating disorders are a distortion uh, disorder because anorexics look in the mirror, which I'm not. I'm a binge eater yeah. and I don't yeah. purge, so I get fat. So, but and I I was at Renfrew in Philadelphia for five to six weeks. Lived there with most of them were teenagers and had anorexia nervosa, and I used to sit across from them. And they would brag if they had lost a quarter of a pound. They're very competitive. We're, all of us are pretty much, most of the kids do pretty well in school. I was the yeah. oldest one there. Um, it's all the same stuff, though. Um, when all, we there? All the eating disorders are about emotion. Yeah. But it's manifested differently. Some people feel like they have no control at all in life. So the one area 
that I've listened to with, with anorexic kids, yeah. it, people, is that they can have control over this. This is yes. the one thing they control in their life. Everything else in their life they feel is out of control. So yeah. they hang on to this. Binge eaters, which I know myself, what I did is I ate to push my emotions down to the bottom, as far as I could get them down to the bottom of my stomach so I wouldn't feel, and I'd feel numb, the way somebody who drinks too much feels numb. We're trying yeah. to numb the pain. Uh, so that's, that's the way I coped. Everyone has their different choice of <laughs> agony, whatever. I, yeah, I have uh, eating issues. And, and I'm you a have man. eating issues? I do. My mother was anorexic, so like, I was brought up with this idea that I, couldn't, I was unacceptable if I was chubby. And it's uh, it, it's the deepest issue I have. I can't shake it. You know, like I have body dysmorphia and I'm nuts. And it, you know it's difficult, uh, yes. but I've learned to live with it. And I you know I stay healthy and I eat, but like it's not a, like an hour goes by where I don't think about it. I'm I same with me. And I wake yeah. up every morning and I say, I have an eating disorder. Just like I would say if I were an alcoholic, I am an alcoholic, because I find that when I own it, it does help me. It's when I try huh. to push it away that I do worse. For me, everyone's different. Yeah. But for me, that's what helps me the most. I just accept it. I take ownership of it. I think about food constantly. I, every time I'm going to go eat, I go, oh, God, I have to think about this again. Um, and, it's, <laughs> and I love food. <laughs> I mean, I, I love know. it. I love to eat it. I love the, the taste. I love it. I did it last night. Last night I did it. I just went nuts. I just went, did like, you, I, what I, did you, What's the thing? Really, I mean, I don't have any. Well, for like me, ice like it's, it's ice cream. But last night that I just used ate to be like, wine. Yeah, I just ate an entire rotisserie chicken and, you know, with hummus oh, and bread. excellent. And was it delish? <laughs> yeah, it was, but about a third of the way through, it's like, I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to eat this again. I just, because <laughs> Well, I'll I, tell you what, well, let's check in maybe in a week or so. We'll see how the chicken uh, is going, if you, can, if you can still eat it or not. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. but it's really hard. It's, it's, it's painful. It's horrible. How but long you was it? You had it all your life? I think, yeah, we, in, in therapy, you know, they ask you about when do you remember the first time yeah. and feeling, feelings. Right. I'd say 11, you know, uh -huh. and usually for girls it's around puberty and that's me. And So was it directly connected with you knowing that you were attracted to women? Oh, no. I didn't uh -huh. know that at all. Not until uh -huh. I was in my 20s or late really? teens. Late huh. teens or 20s. Well, 50%, I don't know if this is still true. It used to be. 50% of kids, people know um, if they're gay or um if they want to be a transgender girl or boy or something, 50% uh, before you're 18, before I'm 18, and 50% after you're 18. Now, I don't know. That probably has shifted now because of the way society views us uh -huh. um, and views me. So I would think maybe more than 50% before 18. But before 18? No idea. Huh. When I walk in the room, I saw Larry across the room. I'm like, yeah, baby. He's, he's yeah. the one. Yeah, no, no, no. I, and I you guys had a good time for the time you were together? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love Larry. And, um, you know, Lana and I are the godmothers of his children and, and, and Nancy's children. His and Nancy's children. And, oh, yeah. It's such a, it's such a, like the evolution of your identity is, is actually a, a, a great story. And it doesn't always go that way, you know? No, it doesn't. It can be, it's been difficult. People say, what's the most difficult part of my, my journey? Would, I'd say my sexuality. Really? And it, it, because That's you, my it, eating. My chick, yeah. Like the big chicken over there. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. I get it. But, when you talk like that, I get that. I get sure. it. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I do it too. I don't know that I, I ever I'm thought of you. it as stuffing my feelings, but it's probably that. I just, you know, it, it makes sense. Have you ever gone sense. to anybody to talk about it? Not, I, not, it's odd. I haven't gone to anybody to talk about that specifically in a deep way, but I have talked about it, but it really is. And, you know, I'm sober 22 years. So like, but okay. that's still my deepest issue. Is that food thing, man? And you know, fuck. so you've been sober for how many years? Twenty-two years. Wow, good for you. Yeah, you know that's okay. D how did you do that, though? You know the way you do it with the meetings. You go to the secret society. Oh, so did you go to AA? Yeah. Oh wow, that's good. Yeah, I've been to know, some general AA meetings. Um, actually, Elton John took me to one. Oh yeah. Yeah, you, you know they have open house like on Christmas Day in in London in England for AA. Uh, you can bring oh, somebody. Yeah. Sure. yeah, I went with them. Uh huh. It was amazing. How's he doing? Oh my God, he's doing great. We just we just stayed with him and David and the boys. I don't know, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, it was good to see him because we, you know, it's with COVID, we haven't been able to see him as much, and we talk, you know, and send send notes. But 
Yeah. Not the same as being with them. And the boys are growing up. Oh, my God. Zach and Elijah. And it's That's really great. It's really adorable. But, no, Elton's, you know, getting ready to go back out on the road with his farewell tour if he can get going. And then, you know, God, he, he really, he really, I'm, I'm very excited because I think in 22, he's going to do his last farewell tour, which I doubt will really happen, but he, but at Dodger Stadium, you know, he, he did Dodger Stadium in 90, in 75 and for a couple of days and it was just amazing. I was there with him and it was just amazing experience. He must love it. They, these guys must love it to keep doing it. I mean, I don't, you know. Of course they I, love I, it. I mean, the trouble with being a jock or an athlete is you better do it when you're young because you you're not going to get a second chance like like musicians or yeah you or stand ups do, like you yeah you or, can't keep doing I'm, a farewell tour every few years I know he, uh, why not whatever they want no but <laughs> I mean, as so an athlete going, as an whatever. athlete you can't no you cannot a, so you and you know people are saying well you you know you can keep playing and I go. I'm not Frank Sinatra, and I can't sing with my knees because my <laughs> knees were. I had knee yeah, operations. Yeah. I go, you guys. I don't think uh, I can sing with my knees, so I think that's out. Wait, what about to, to, just? To, I just want to know to to get back on it. What, what about the 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 uh, identity struggle made it the worst thing? Was it that because you judged yourself that you didn't want to be, or, mm, or it was just, very it's very shame based. I mean, yeah, uh, my parents are homophobic. I was okay. grew up homophobic, probably, yeah. and I'm sure I did. And um, just coming to grips with it, um, right? And the eating is definitely related to it. So I have sure. to. Oh God, I'm constantly. Uh, the eating is the only thing I have. To, I don't have to worry about my identity anymore. I'm very comfortable with that now. Even though That's good. occasionally I get a, a little stomach uh, sometimes, depending upon where I am and the situation I'm in. But it's but also like I you know when I really think about what's going on with uh, gender and sexuality now that you know you. We're right there with uh, Dr. Renee Richards at, you know, really one of the first kind of um, cultural moments around trans people and what rights they have. Yes, it was a real privilege to get to know her. And she's still in our life as one of our friends. And she's our ophthalmologist, although she's retiring. So she's only working one day a week and she's in her 80s. Um, but Ilana, um, my partner in life, yeah. wife, whatever, yeah. um, I've said partner for so many years. Um, it's fun. To, yeah. It's weird to say wife, but yeah. she's my wife. Um, <laughs> that Ilana was the number one player in the world in doubles. Yeah. Ilana played uh, Renee as a male and then as a female. Uh huh. Because Renee said to me one day, "There's only one person who's beaten me as a male and a female, and I bet you don't know who that is." I said, "Oh yes, I do. It's Ilana," and she starts cracking up. <laughs> yeah, you do know. <laughs> Do you find that? Do you think that like it, that sports in and of itself is still pretty homophobic? I think men have a lot harder time now than women, but mm. no, I think it's gotten much better, particularly in women's sports. But men's sports, um, what's the guy's name? Uh, uh, Carl Nazib, is it? Is it with the Raiders? He came out, and the, everyone yeah, supported name, him. Yeah. We need more men like that to come out. But we also need the quarterbacks of these teams. I, I, I get upset. Like, the, like a couple of linemen said they support him, and the association supports him, you know, the, the Players Association. But I want to hear the quarterbacks of those teams because a quarterback is considered the leader of a team. And we need, the, we need the quarterbacks to step up and say, I'm for this guy. He's part of our team. Uh, yeah. It's just like what Bill Russell said years ago. Leslie Visser, a great writer, was telling me that uh, they, and this is way back in the 60s and 70s, and they asked Bill Russell about it, and he said, well, can they, can they shoot? That's all he cared about, which is exactly the way we should think about it. That's right. And, but you do need to, you know, someone to step up, not unlike you did with, you know, Dr. Richards. And it, You've got to step up, right. Yeah. But the interesting thing now, from what I understand, within women's within the feminist community is is it's still a sort of kind of evolving uh issue around acceptance of trans athletes is that true trans athletes is going through yes they're going through a lot because some people think they shouldn't be able to uh, participate and this is an ongoing thing my what i want is that everyone have a chance to compete or play so we got to figure this out um Everyone keeps just pointing to testosterone, but the more I talk to scientists that are in this, that study this area, it's just not that simple. You metabolize, every human being metabolizes it differently. 
There's been two guys, for instance, that if you measure their testosterone, they would be considered feminine, but they won two gold medals in men's. I mean, these are guys that they've been yeah. measured. And no one's ever heard about them, but I know of these things because I listen to the scientists. And I don't think it's that easy. But the bottom line, we're going to have to figure it out. It's not uh, cut and dry. So I think we sure. need to keep listening to the scientists as they keep studying this uh, thoroughly. But bottom line, I want every human being to have a chance to compete and play, just like the Paralympians. And the Paralympians... As, and as the human beings that they want to be. Correct. So that's what I... Just Billie Jean King. Uh, some, of the, some of the athletes think that, that I'm out to lunch and I'm wrong and they shouldn't be allowed to compete. Martina Navratilova nope. is one of them. She thinks you're wrong? She thinks I'm totally wrong. And we've had a discussion. I said, Martina, you may be right, and I totally hear you. I appreciate what you say. But all I want, personally, for me, Billie Jean King, and I think the Women's Sports Foundation probably, is that we want everyone to have a chance to play and compete. So we've got to figure out the answer. How does it make you feel when, like, you see... Like in the like like Simone Biles, you know that the that people are publicly having, you know, being open about the mental strain and emotional strain and stress of being professional athletes. I you think know, it's begin- I think it's good. I think it's yeah. brave. I think it took a lot of courage. I also think she cared about the team to make sure they were going to medal because if she stayed in it, they were not going to. So I thought that was a great leadership moment um, for her. I think it's good when we hear th- their truth. But I think we need to do a better job of, of um, like, rookie school where we teach and tell them what it takes to be a professional athlete. But remember the gymnast. With doctor, mm. They were very abused by their doctor. Remember doc, yeah, Dr. Yeah. Nassar? Yeah. So that is so traumatic. And when you get under any kind of stress, like, of course, the competition in the Olympics is, that alone can be a trigger that's going to set you off in, in, into um, mental challenges and, and emotional challenges. So with gymnastics, there's so many of oh, those women were abused by this horrible doctor, Dr. Nassar. So I think I it I should think be as, as big an issue as the Catholic Church. I mean, that was out of control. It was crazy. Totally that, and it's all, you know, another place I, we think it's out of control, I'm not sure yet, is cheerleading. So we need to really get in there and investigate that area as well. Huh. I'm just starting to hear it rumbles, and a lot of people are starting to come to me in the last two or three weeks saying, "Really? If you think the gymnastics are bad, this this cheerleading is terrible." So we've got to really pay attention to predators and people who are inappropriate. Yeah, and I think also like you know, getting back to you know people, you know, uh, and and identity, and it's just that it seems to me that it, especially with Dr. Richards, that you know when people meet people you know, outside of the way they think about the idea or the issue, you know, something shifts. And I think there's a lot of distance between people's ideas of, of what's right and wrong and who people are and, and who they actually are. And I think that you, by by stepping into that with Renee Richards, you, you know, you gave the culture the the opportunity to to, to see her as a human and not an idea or a, a, a moral problem. Well, that's interesting you said it because the women didn't want her when they first heard about her coming on. They right. were like crazed. What about the locker room? What about this? I go, everybody, calm down. I'm going to go talk to doctors. You can do the same. Mm. And then I'm going to call Renee. And I went and talked to doctors. I did call Renee. Renee and I had a four-hour meeting, and I listened to her stories. And... I went to the doctors and I said, is she considered a woman or not? And they said, yes, she is. I said, that's all I need to know. Went back to the woman and they're like up in arms. And I said, okay, I'm just going to ask you to do one thing. I want you to accept her for at least two weeks on the tour, okay? Yeah. And they all kind of calmed down and they said, okay, that's fair enough. Within two days of, of yeah. Renee being on <laughs> on the tour, all the women are coming to me. She is so nice. She's the greatest. <laughs> and to your point, what you just talked about is how you look at people differently once you get to know them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once the players, our players got to know her, then they just love her. That was it. Done. That's great. Now, last question. How are you treated like uh, by these, these new... Um, 
you know, these new champions in, in like the Williams sisters in particular. Have oh, they... I'm, <laughs> I've known them since this is scary. 1988, when they were seven and eight years old. Wow. Actually, in the book, there's a photo photos of them we yeah. found them you cannot believe this took three years we found these photos yeah because i kept saying the long beach t- uh, press telegram ha- was there that day they have to it was in long beach california where i'm from and they live r- nearby yeah and that's the day i met them when they were seven and eight so i have known them for since then they're yeah. wonderful uh they were on the fed cup teams i was captain which is the world cup teams uh, of tennis for women's tennis so i got to know them pretty well and, uh-huh. uh, you know, and, Z- and Venus stepped up for equal prize money in, in 2005. We got equal prize money with the majors in 07. And she actually won Wimbledon in 07. It was absolutely perfect that she won, Wim- that Venus won Wimbledon in uh, 2007 to celebrate equal prize money in all four majors. And she was the front person for the players at that time. We needed someone current. And she was oh. the one. And then Serena has always fought for women's issues and, and equality and also particularly, obviously, women of color. She and her husband are doing unbelievable investments in business. Um, mm. I'm really lucky to know these two kids. Not to me, they're okay. always kids, but I'm, to know them and to see yeah. how they've uh, excelled. You know, and, and also life after tennis. They're going to be amazing. You've really uh, you've been a major influence on, on so much of... Uh, the, the the fights that you know were hard won and still go on but uh you know it's a real honor talking to you it's great talking to you mark and i you know i've seen you through the years on the night shows and oh, this, so anyway yeah. and, and this is going great huh WPF? yeah i'm doing all right i'm doing okay, doing okay. Now i just gotta learn i gotta learn how to play tennis that's what i need to learn well why don't you get craig out there your brother i know i know i gotta get him out. He'll, he'll teach you he'll hit the ball to you <laughs> yeah he can he teach will. it to you maybe he'll yeah. start having fun again with it that's a good. I, that's a good idea. Yeah, he likes his pickle. The pickle balls. That's fine. Right pickleball and go play pickle, pickle. Whatever works for anybody. What makes them happy? All the racket sports are amazing sports for people. Tennis has been voted the number one healthiest sport, and swimming. Okay, those okay. are the two top. I'm going to do it. I'm going to. I'm going to play some more tennis. All right. To be continued. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye bye. Billie Jean King again. The book all in. An autobiography is available now wherever you get books. Uh, now, let me play some, I don't know, it's kind of, I don't know. I'm just going to plunk around. Monkey! Cat angels everywhere, man.